May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is the second part of the interview with Jacobs. He shares his story of recovery, going from just surviving to overcoming and thriving. For those who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am Dr. Michael Lenz, author of Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. I've been a doctor for over 26 years. I'm a pediatrician an internal medicine doctor, a lifestyle medicine physician, and a clinical lipidologist. This podcast is meant to inform, inspire, and equip those who are going through fibromyalgia to help their loved ones who don't really understand what fibromyalgia is grow in their appreciation and grow in their wisdom to help understand and then help support those who are battling this and also for doctors and other medical providers who want to learn more. Often they have not had much training and education in this complicated and often frustrating condition. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to take some time to recognize listener feedback. This comes from Amy. Amy writes, I recently came across your podcast and have listened to many of them. I live in New Zealand and have spent the last two years struggling with what I believe is fibromyalgia. It's taken all of this time to finally gain access to appointments with rheumatology. The appointments were brief and a few trigger points were checked with a brief amount of questions. I basically felt I wasn't listened to or even believed. The outcome was that without me having trigger points, they couldn't diagnose me with fibromyalgia. When I heard your episode, part three, on Do I Have Fibromyalgia, I cried when you spoke about trigger points at the conclusion. I felt some validation for how I've been feeling and for how hard the last couple of years have been. My hope would be that you would discuss a diagnosis with or without trigger points on your podcast and maybe why some countries like New Zealand have to include trigger points for a diagnosis in the public health system. I massively appreciate the work you do and the hope you give myself and others. Without people like you working in this field, I think it's a pretty lonely, tough road for me and others when the only person you know experiencing something like this is yourself. Thank you so much for your work and your podcast. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Amy. As we communicated through email, but sharing here with the listeners, the old guidelines had the use of trigger points or tender points in making the diagnosis. And you can see some of those classic diagrams when you look online. The updated 
American College of Rheumatology criteria in 2016 no longer requires those tender or trigger points. And the reason is is that they're often not reliable and they used to require a certain amount of pressure, say four kilograms, and you had to have a special dolorimeter, which is a pain pressure uh, that you could apply at a certain amount, but most people wouldn't have that. And that is one of the reasons why men were often underdiagnosed because many men don't qualify if you use the tender or trigger points. So, how do you make the diagnosis? You can look at those earlier episodes, like you mentioned on episode 3 on Do I Have Fibromyalgia? And subsequent episodes talking about how bad is my fibromyalgia. But a diagnosis is through using a careful history and then the use of the widespread pain index and symptom severity score. As I talked about on the podcast on how bad my fibromyalgia, or how bad is your fibromyalgia, using the revised fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, which is very helpful to assess progress over time. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask me to be talked about on the podcast or for future podcast topics, please email me at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Remember that this podcast is for informational purposes only. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your trusted medical doctor or provider. And now on to this week's episode. So you finally got off the Suboxone and I think you've been off it for over a year and a half now. How have you felt overall during the last year and a half compared to the seven, eight years before, at least probably more like nine years before you had been on chronic Suboxone therapy? I haven't felt this good since before, back before this whole ordeal started. Going back to elementary school? (laughs) Yeah, this is the best I've ever felt. I've never had energy and focus to do things or enjoy things before, I guess, maybe. It's my head is was clear for the first time in so long and that fog just kind of started evaporating bit by bit until eventually I could see things clearly again and just very totally so different now than how I was five years ago. What impact did being off Suboxone, treating restless leg and treating ADHD eating healthier and exercising more. And along the way, your blood pressure dropped, you lost weight, your labs improved with your cholesterol. How did that impact your work? It allowed me to work consistently on a full-time basis to start. Like I never had the motivation or energy to go to work every day for eight hours before. That was totally new to me. Never. I never did that. And it allowed me to get into the workforce, I guess, like on a full-time consistent basis where I could make some progress starting a career. And I started off just as an assembly on a production line, putting together just simple things. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it and eventually started making some progress with my career a bit. 
And you um, have gotten promotions, right, along the way? Yeah, several. You started off as the lowest level assemblier, and in a year's time, I did work my way up. I had started as a supervisor just because I worked really long hours and became really dedicated and focused and motivated on just my job all of a sudden. It was a very dramatic change for me. Even I can't really believe it of for why I suddenly started caring so much about working hard. And what feedback did you get from your managers and supervisors? They all just couldn't believe that I cared so much about putting together some boxes. <laughs> I just became so interested in always asking all my supervisors and my managers about everything that I very quickly became friends with them, I guess. I learned a lot from them suddenly in a very short period of time because I guess I just had an interest. And you could follow and, through with it then and stick with going to a job and having positive feedback. It's been a long time since you had good results, whether academic results and the positive feedback consistently going to work. Since I had been good at anything before. Like suddenly I was valuable again. It almost seems like it goes back to Taekwondo and I'm sure you worked your way up and part of Taekwondo is you matriculate in your skills and you get higher and higher belt levels, obviously. Going back to childhood, how high had you gotten, do you think, in your level of belts for Taekwondo? Um, I was a black belt, but it wasn't just about being a black belt. I traveled all around the country competing on the Junior Olympics and in the national championships. I was very dedicated and focused on Taekwondo at the time and did compete at a very high level. So that was reinforcing, probably almost a similar level then as you are now, where you were obviously getting praise because you competed and you performed well and you did well. And then there was a long gap almost up until now where you were able to consistently do things that and show up at work and get yeah, the higher belt levels. I could do things well for a short period of time before, but I just couldn't do it consistently. When you look at sports and activities that are good for people who have ADHD, one of them is martial arts. It's movement, listening, then performing, and the skills and athleticism and coordination to perform all those moves. But not surprisingly, you did well with that. Unfortunately, as the stories often hear, is something gets in the way and you stop doing it. And in middle school, there was stress at home. And that's where the wheels started coming off the train, so to speak, and started to spiral down the road. And now, you know, you're doing something that an eighth grader and a freshman or a sophomore in high school shouldn't be doing is worrying about your dad and Looking back, when you see the family history of untreated restless leg and ADHD, people will treat it. And unfortunately, he probably did a good job of treating it for a lot of his life because he, looking back, had likely used exercise and Taekwondo to help manage. Yeah. 
but he had uh, done he had he was able to compensate in a lot yes. of ways and he was able to manage and hold things together with these struggles until it he couldn't and then once you start using a substance to cope it becomes a trap as you probably can relate and you fell into the trap and I'm sure your dad never, nobody intends to be an Oxycontin addict. Nobody intends to have an alcohol use disorder where it's controlling their life. And then you fall into the trap and you got through that. Uh, Yeah, I did get through it. And your story is one of hope for others. And I think hopefully there's a lot of insights that people can here listening, of course, if you are using Suboxone for, you need to be managed carefully because stopping Suboxone suddenly, though medical supervision should never be done. You have to be watching this closely, but amazing that there are coexisting medical problems. I think sometimes you can be labeled, you're a Suboxone user, you're a cotton addict in remission, and that's just who you are. And we stop looking for other coexisting issues that can impact overall functioning. I know one of the fears was you had fallen back into using. You're having all this fatigue. You're feeling run down. There's a lot of factors that are affecting it, but maybe it's time to consider going off the Suboxone because you weren't around people using it. You can get access to substances, but you had been clean, and now you're functioning better and doing so much better in so many different ways. And... Dr. Dodson talked about people who had struggled with alcoholism, who he worked with, Dr. Dodson. If you can listen to one of the earlier podcast episodes, 25 to 30, he talks about treating people who had chemical dependency and including alcohol. And they found that half of people who had gone to AA meetings twice a day, had such severe alcohol use disorder, still couldn't keep a week of sobriety. And yet half of them were found to have ADHD. And when they treated ADHD in those patients, nearly all of them were able to help stay sober. And that's part of the treatment plan. It often doesn't get looked at. And I think there's many people out there in the world. People who have ADHD that are untreated are much more likely to develop an addiction. The ones who don't are ones who usually are very physically active, have found a career that fits really well with their ADHD brain, and they implement those strategies. But unfortunately, something can happen in life where there's a stress, and suddenly people are starting to use some other substance. I have heard people say everybody treats their ADHD. It's just with healthy ways or unhealthy ways. And now you're treating it with healthy ways. You don't have that unfulfilled potential and you continue to grow, which is just got to feel good. It feels like I have accomplished something for the first time in a very long time. Um, Having energy. Yeah. And just, yeah, having the energy just to do anything, not being in a constant cloud of just mental haze combined with self-loathing and depression and anxiety. I just, I can't even describe how much better I feel now than five years ago. Thanks for sharing your story. And I think that a lot of the listeners will have a lot to think about.
And, and if they're not going through this, they might know somebody who's gone through this. And if they don't, even if they don't know somebody, it's nice to hear somebody that's been struggling and now is doing so much better. Any other last thoughts for people out there who might be where you were two and a half to seven years ago? I'm trying to think of what advice I could give myself seven years ago. And boy, what would I tell myself to try to get me on a better path? It would be... I guess maybe looking back when I talked to you about this roughly <laughs> seven years ago, and I talked about how the restless leg and the ADHD and eating healthy, all of those are important to help you feel better and function better. What would you say to yourself after you came home and were... Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Talking. Just, just try it. Just try the first step and see if you feel any better. And give it a little time, stick with it, and just do some small things because they add up. If you do just a couple things, making some steps in the right direction, not overeating at every meal, just trying to be a little more active, like you'll feel better. And it sounds corny, but diet and exercise. Sure. I would say, listen, I wish I could have told myself after the first time I saw you, just please listen. (laughs) What have you learned about the importance of treating ADHD, at least for you personally, and how that's had an impact? And what would you have told yourself that you didn't fully appreciate back then, but now you do? Treating my ADHD, I guess, has allowed me to focus on my life again. It's just, it's hard to fully say it in a couple sentences. Treating my ADHD is just allowed me to be healthy, healthier, and happier. Before I was treating my ADHD, I might have said this to you at one point when I was seeing you, I wasn't really living, to me at that point, like, Winning was like just being alive. Not being dead was winning to me. And now I have other things that I actually consider winning and success. And I know what those are now. I think those words, being alive was winning. And for those who are using Oxycontin, and who are addicted to opioids and now with the fentanyl laced medications out there that and heroin and all of that where people are dying, just staying alive. And the message, of course, Suboxone is a good halfway house, if you want to call it. And some people are on it for many years. But then you were alive, but you weren't thriving. The box and allowed me not to die and it allowed me to be alive and that was good enough for me that was a win maybe this is what you're not saying but feel is i didn't know there was really anything possible for me that's a yes that's a very good way of saying what i was feeling yeah i didn't know 
I was capable of more. And I didn't know that there was anything more to life. And obviously you saw other people doing it. And to your credit, throughout all of those years, you actually tried. You signed up for classes. Your mom was encouraging. All right, you can do it, Jake. I know you're not, right? Try some other classes. Maybe you don't like this. Maybe you don't like that. I think for many people with untreated ADHD, once they hit a challenge, I'll switch. I'm bored. I'll switch a different major. Like, I don't like that professor. I was going to do that major. Uh, maybe not. And it's hard to follow through, right? It's that short-term goal. Yeah. And if there's yeah. any roadblock, it's hard to look back. And for many people, and I get a chance to listen to, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Tamara Rozier, who wrote the book, Your Brain is Not Broken, a very good book for looking at ADHD. And she talks about different grids in living with ADHD. And by that, she's looking at life and in living life. And there's red, yellow, blue, and green. The red activities are that procrastination waiting to the last minute. These are dopamine releasing. It's that thrill that I threw that paper together. I quick studied. I prepared for that speech because I was afraid or some high level of stress to motivate you to do something, right? And that's the procrastination. It doesn't make any rational sense to wait to the last minute if you don't have ADHD. If you have ADHD, it makes perfectly logical sense to do that. And the problem with living in the red zone is that gets exhausting mentally, doesn't it? And it's hard to continually do that all the time. And when what you're doing is maybe not as exciting to you, then the novelty's worn off, you'll give up, right? And then you have a lot of yellow things. Yellow things are productive, but they don't have a huge dopamine release. And that's just studying for the test, writing the paper, doing the things at work now that might seem methodical and routine, but you're able to do that and stick with it, right? Yes. And those are things that you struggled with before. And then the other part, the other two grids she talks about are blue grids where you are not doing anything productive, but it's not stressful. And that might be flipping through TikTok videos or flipping through a magazine. It's not very productive and we vegging out. And it's good. Everybody does that to a certain degree, but often that's escaping. You're just pacifying yourself. And I'm sure part of your life had become living in the blue zone when you're on the Sabak zone where you were just pacifying yourself. You had given up. Periodically, you'd get into the red zone, right? Try some school, get stressed get burned out on the yellow, don't have that enthusiasm and strength and no real long-term direction, right? So give up earlier. And then the green zone, those are the areas that are revitalizing. That's taking the time to cook a healthy recipe and feeling good with that. Having fun with friends that are doing fun things, right? Not using Oxycontin or alcohol, but having good, positive social connections and relationships. It's exercising, which helps revitalize you. All of those are green things, but unfortunately, you weren't doing a lot of those green things for a variety of reasons. A lot of people just fall into that trap. Now you're doing a lot more green things. 
than you used to, right? Oh, far more. Far more green things. Well, and yellow things. I really didn't have any tolerance for yellow things either. It was all red and blue before. And now a lot of it's largely green and yellow. And I actually enjoy the yellow things because that's my vegging out. The tedious, methodical things is my vegging out now. And you are learning. You're able to learn new things and you want to grow. The analogy for ADHD often is like getting a pair of glasses, right? And you didn't know what you were missing. You just That's assumed analogy. You, you assumed that this is the best I am going to see. And you have just grabbed on to being able to see, metaphorically, to function with your ADHD treated, that you are not going to take it for granted. So when your bosses see you asking these questions and performing well, in a sense, they knew you before. And now they see the progress and you're doing so well. But it's like a baby learning to walk and then run for the first time. Why aren't you doing that? Isn't this exciting? I can do all of this. And you're getting positive feedback. And even if you weren't getting promoted and doing so well and the recognition, you are enjoying the job more. I often say for my adolescents and middle school students who are getting treated for the first time, I'll say those boring classes with boring teachers Suddenly, that is going to magically make them less boring. Now, I, of course, it's all a kind of tongue-in-cheek, but boring things, which now we would call yellow category of things, those low dopamine-releasing but very productive activities, you're able to do and complete, and that just makes you feel better. They were, yes, exactly. And, yeah, you get your own yellow things become a bigger dopamine release because I guess you feel so good about accomplishing what you used to consider an impossible task. Boring things, tedious and monotonous things before to me, it was, it was, I couldn't do it and it was impossible. Now it's not. And that's part of often with people who are living with chronic pain and fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome is that, it's really hard to sustain the activity. She also uses an analogy is like having a battery used Tesla that when the weather gets cold in Wisconsin, the battery range drops 30%. So I have to calculate where I am going on a trip. If I have a hundred mile trip and it says a hundred miles in my tank, but I know that's really only 70, I do not want to run out of gas. And there's that range anxiety that's known in the electric vehicle world. And when you had untreated restless leg and untreated ADHD and were eating unhealthy, you had limited amount of power in you, would you say? Is that one way to yeah, think of it. Exactly right. I should probably read this book uh, because I had <laughs> anxiety. That's exactly what I have. I would become fearful because I would know that I would get tired and fatigued and just sore so easily that it was always on my mind that I couldn't do that because in the future, because I knew I would get too fatigued. So I didn't even bother trying because of that anxiety. And you didn't want to collapse and give up. So it's better to stay in a comfort zone and just yes, exactly. and st stay in that comfort zone and try to push. And then sometimes what happens if you push too hard, you'd feel even more worn out, right? 
and you realize, oh, I overdid it one day. If you pushed it too hard, you probably hurt more, were more fatigued. And there's a metaphor of how old you are, right? And how old you feel. Would you say that you felt relatively old in the past? I felt very old in the past. Yes, that's a very apt metaphor because I'm older now, but I feel much younger. Yeah. Much encouragement for all of our listeners and glad that you could take some time to just share that because hearing stories of real people, you're not a paid actor to come in here. It's just wanting to help people and help people like yourself who are back there thinking this is where I'm stuck and this is where I'm at and that's the best I'm ever going to get. And also for people who know somebody like you to help understand their perspectives. I think it looking at yourself back then, it would be easy to come across as just thinking you're just lazy. Right? Uh, yeah, that would be very easy. You have a bad attitude. You're just lazy. All of those things. And on the outside, without having that insight and that perspective of you had barriers that were keeping you from living out the healthiest life you could have. The good news, people like your mom knew that, but your mom wasn't a doctor, but she knew somebody like myself who had said seven years ago or so, we'll see Dr. Lenz. And then unfortunately there was disagreement by your other doctor and that many doctors don't understand the connections and how these other connections make it harder for somebody to function and live fully. And if you would have stuck with that earlier, you would have been functioning better and much sooner. But your mom recognized your potential and needed some medical help and was able to get connected with you and all of that. So as you move forward, I think you'll always appreciate that. You've unfortunately, what you went through and the story you went through is going to help many hundreds of, if not thousands of people who get a chance to listen to this podcast and growing their insights. The message too, that you didn't know what you were missing. And I was trying to tell you, you were missing a lot and you didn't have to live like this, but you didn't yeah, fully believe me. <laughs> no, no, I really didn't. I didn't believe you. I just wasn't listening. One of the two or a combination of both. And you didn't, you had no experience to think that. And I think you had been to rehab, right? You'd been to doctors, probably many different doctors and nurse practitioners, and nobody ever brought any of this up, right? No, no one. And, and I've seen many doctors trying to all figure out that because I knew or I knew something was wrong with me. I knew I wasn't normal. I just didn't know what. And I think that's often for a lot of people that may see me as they may say, how did you figure this out when nobody else did? And I think because we are in silos in medicine that we don't look beyond our specific silo. You may look at an addiction and you're just a person with an addiction. You don't have any other issues going on, right? And treating underlying health conditions like you had and have allows you to implement the healthy lifestyle changes. It allows you to live just 
economic changes that impact you, right? You can actually make a good living, earn money. That helps you feel better just naturally, right? And it makes you want to go back and learn more. And looking at all of this, you will be very good in the business world. If you said, oh, if I would have known this, I would have got a business degree and been able to do that. And who knows where I'd be in this, but, and maybe you will do that. Maybe you'll get a chance to do some continued learning and get a degree that might allow you to work your way up in a factory. But I've had a number of patients who got a technical degree or a two-year degree, then worked in a factory or in a world kind of entry level type position and worked their way up. And then like the undercover boss, you know what it's like to be working at the ground level. So you understand operations, right? And you understand how the plant works and you want to grow. One of the things about ADHD that's such a positive and can be tapped into is curiosity. And what comes through is you are very curious. Thank you. I try to be. And that's what... That's what your bosses are saying. Oh, you're always asking questions, right? Why is this? How does that work? Et cetera, right? And yet when anything's got a little bit hard or you had to dig through the details, you get bored. Now you're able to stick with it. And that curiosity and following through, now you're able to learn more, stick through it. And tasks that seemed it would take too long to do and took too much effort and weren't especially immediately interesting or gratifying, you would give up on, right? Immediately. And now you're sticking with it. I'm sure part of your job is you're able to teach people each level you went through. Now you're able to understand their job better than probably anybody in the plant, would you say, for the positions oh, you've... Yeah. And, and now you understand all of those things, which is a great resource of understanding an accomplishment. You've become your own expert in this. And that's that I want to be an expert. I always wanted to. Yeah, It's been said with ADHD, people with ADHD don't have a problem knowing what to do. You didn't you always wanted to learn things. You nobody wanted to, you didn't want to just show up late and do it half done. You just, it was too hard for you. And for many people, unfortunately, who are who have the same kind of health issues you have, unfortunately, and never get the treatment you have, and then are fall prey to the health effects of their addiction and are more likely to die. People with untreated ADHD have a shortened lifespan by about 13 years. And when you're young like yourself, one of those is death from overdose. And being overwhelmed, suicide, and car accidents. As time goes on, if you are able to stay alive like you have when you're on the Suboxone, but you use food, then it's more likely to develop a fatty liver or develop diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, high cholesterol. But now you're making that impact and helping prevent that. It, it, it intersects with so many different health issues in the body. And I think it's so important for patients to be aware of that, their loved ones and doctors who care for people like yourself out there to hear your story. That's the end of the 
podcast here with Jake. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask, or if you'd like to share your story, whether that's through a email or send a voice recording through the email, you can send that through the link in the show notes at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series with Jake. If you haven't had a chance to listen to other podcast episodes, please do. One of the best ways you can show your appreciation and support of the podcast show is to hit the like or follow button, leave a review and a five-star rating, and share with others. That way more can help grow in their understanding of fibromyalgia and learn to not just survive but to thrive and recover or at least live in a much better healthier level of fibromyalgia symptoms until next week go team fibro